Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I don't know what that means! I don't know what it means! Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, I just went to New Orleans for four days for a conference. I must have put on at least 10 pounds while I was there. Would you push me off a bridge to save five people? Uh, I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University, and I I didn't want to say anything, but I kind of noticed. So, you know, ever since I started studying uh, moral, moral psychology and moral judgment, moral philosophy, I've tried my best to develop that freakish circus skill of estimating people's weight by just looking at them so that if I ever get into that situation, I'll know exactly whether or not to push you. Uh, In this case, actually, I might push you and not be quite sure why. (laughs) (laughs) You could be doing it for any number of reasons. (laughs) If there was no train. (laughs) There was no train. There was no one stuck. And if it was, it would be like, that's just gravy. That's just like the icing on the cake. Come my defense trial, I'll be like, oh, oh yeah, that, that was why. Are you saying, sir, that the reason you pushed him off the bridge was to save those five people? I'm gonna what, there were five people? What, I did. Uh, uh, yeah, yes, yes. Uh, that's exactly why I pushed him. I mean, this, you know, we'll talk about this in a bit, but I think that, um, that, that, that this, this, that is going to relate to our topic for today, which is we're going to be talking about, well, we're going to be talking about Josh Green's new book, um, with the caveat. Well, right. let's do, right. let's let's, yeah. tell, let's tell the caveat later. Well, we'll do the caveat. It's a somewhat embarrassing caveat. <laughs> really, we're talking about two reviews of Josh Green's right. book, right? And um, then just and then just uh, arrogantly, arrogantly um, relying on our <laughs> what we're pretty sure the book said. <laughs> well, it's, it's both of us know Josh Green's book really well, or the work, not the book really well, yeah. but the, the the his work really well, his views really well. I interviewed him from. For the book version of Very Bad Wizard, and we talked about a lot of the issues that right. are being brought up in the review. Right, but, and, and he's my he's yeah. he's a he's a friend, and and all of that stuff. So yeah, <laughs> he's a great guy. Let's. Uh, it's, it's been a while since we've read an email, responded to one on the air, although we tried to respond to them in our inbox. But um, I want to read an email. And then also, <laughs> we've gotten a, we just got an iTunes review that might be my favorite compliment 
that we've ever gotten. And then read a iTunes review that I don't understand, but maybe you can maybe you can explain it. <laughs> so the one that I love, it's titled Addictive Content. By the way, rate us on iTunes, and even if you don't like the show, you could rate us. Right now, there's oh, don't a, jinx a, it. Don't jinx a it. Don't suspicious jinx. number of five star reviews. <laughs> don't don't uh, encourage. Well, do you think it'll look better? Like now, it just looks like you know one of us has like a huge family or something like that. <laughs> right. Anyway, here's the here's the great compliment. What would you get if Howard Stern taught philosophy? You'd get something similar to Very Bad Wizards. When listening to the podcast, I feel like I'm eavesdropping on two guys in the bar who happen to be college professors and both make tons of sense. That last part, that might be sarcastic, but I don't know. (laughs) The podcast is good enough to be labeled philosophical pornography. It's actually like the two best compliments that we've ever gotten. The Howard Stern comparison and philosophical pornography. He could very well have meant them both as an insult, but I, I, whatever, but I love it. I love it. Thank you, philosophical layman. So are you Howard? Like what am I? I'm Robin. I want to be Robin. Robin. You're Robin. Yeah. I'm I'm Robin. I'm the straight man, which probably is the the worst term in the world. She was funny. Or at least, you know, I haven't actually listened to it in a while. I used to love it, though. Yeah, me too. When it was so, uh, when it was on on TV, and I was too young to be watching stuff like that, it was like the best right. thing in the world. College and right after college was my right. huge Howard Stern like obsession, and I think I, I think I would love it right now. I just for some reason. Anyway, uh, here's the one I don't understand. It's a five star review. Okay, podcast. <laughs> Very bad wizards is by far and away the best podcast I listen to. <laughs> Uh, preferable both to silence and most other sounds. Tamler and David take breaks. These are real professionals. <laughs> the conversation that happens between breaks, arguably the show itself, is intellectually engaging and often hilarious. VBW is on some level probably nothing more than pro-tenure, pro-Big Bang propaganda. Highly effective at that, as I was on the fence about both before listening. Wow. I took this one as as a compliment given the five star review, but I love the, the, the some sort of, of set theory that he the, the prefer, preferable to both silence and most other sounds. And most I, other see sounds. This, I want a diagram of that. Like, like, uh, yeah, I, I want to know like, a, like most other sounds <laughs> a little vague. Like I want to know what percentage of other sounds birds are singing. Than, what are these sounds that are supposedly better than us? Is it partially examined life? Is it just like two people having sex? Is it like a dog licking its balls? Or that squishy sound when vomit is hitting the bottom of a toilet. (laughs) (laughs) Probably most sounds are bad anyway, so... uh, It's rare to get a good sound, period. Oh, I gotta play. I'll play. I'll play a little bit. Every noise has been used at least five times or something. What do you mean? Because there's only so many noises in the world. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. No, there's only so many what noises. What do you mean every noise has been used five times? <laughs> uh, you know, this is a, this is a, a postmodern uh, uh, iTunes review. iTunes I, review. I really, yes. really enjoy it. Well, so thank you. Thank, and thanks to all who have rated us and given us reviews. And thank who have purchased... Thanks to Wilder and Philosophical Layman. And we have other great ones that are very complimentary and we're very grateful. Right. Let me read and, now a email that challenges us a bit. Yeah, this is a or this is a sort of this? you're better this at is, reading than I. <laughs> this is sort of a theme that returns. This is from Larson Landis 
and the just uh, he's he's basically taking us to task about our our views on revenge and uh, forgiveness. In particular, the example we often use, which is, you know, if somebody if somebody killed or raped your daughter or your sister or your mother, like, how would you reply? And we use we sometimes use this sort of loosely as a justification for for the intuition that revenge um, is is important. And he says, so Larson says, I think it's fair to say that in dealing with this scenario, you've presented the quote unquote rightness of seeking revenge. As obvious as and you've implied, I think that when a man you've adopted a very masculine stance in dealing with the topic, fair enough, doesn't seek to avenge serious insults and injuries inflicted on his family, it's because he's cowardly or disloyal or otherwise inhuman. And then Larson goes on to to tell this uh, story that was relayed in the Radiolab podcast episode on blame about a man whose adopted daughter was raped and murdered after the after the rapist and the murderer was incarcerated. The father of this girl developed a friendship with the man in prison, and they wrote – they were pen pals for years, and he sort of learned about the the horrible upbringing that, that the criminal had, and he ends up forgiving him. And And Larson says, essentially, our position seems to be that this, this person is less of a man. He's, he's less right. He is showing weakness by showing forgiveness. But Larson, he wants to hear our thoughts on this example and forgiveness. He says, is Black, the last name of the father, is Black's example of forgiveness kind of like Singer's utilitarianism that you can accept its force, but at the same time dismiss its applicability to your own life because it's simply too much to strive for? Or do you guys think that Black's response is less right than seeking vengeance? And then he says that it that Black's response to him elicits moral fortitude and courage. Yeah. So I think it's fair. I mean, I don't... I think that we we maybe are correcting for the view that it's obviously wrong to seek revenge. We probably come from from a a background and a tradition and we're surrounded by people who think of revenge as actually quite morally wrong. I think that's absolutely that's that's one part of it is that our environment when we're not talking to each other is in large part liberal academics who find revenge to be something barbaric and primitive right. and something and we need to transcend. Entirely distasteful. But but that yeah. but that in no way I, I agree. I think that forgiving forgiving somebody who's wronged you takes a lot more courage and fortitude um, than in, in, I may I mean in this case I don't know that I would be able to do this and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I I do think though that there is a difference between my personal attitude toward toward the person who's wronged me and whether or not they should be punished. Um, so I'm okay. I'm okay forgiving somebody for having wronged me, but I don't think I would want to interfere. And we got we get into this in 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 one of our other episodes. But you a bad episode, a very bad episode that we don't recommend anybody to listen to. And it's interesting. He says in his description of it, he says while he was reading his victim impact statement, he met Simpson, who's the ki- uh, the, the killer rapist's eyes for the first time and saw the grief in them. Now, you have one of these restorative justice meetings where it's not – they don't just have a chance to glance at each other's eyes but actually have a opportunity to talk and see each other face to face and you have to stare down the guy who did this and he has to stare you down. That takes a tremendous courage and fortitude right. and I think if you do that and you have come to the conclusion that this guy, while he needs to be punished, maybe doesn't 
doesn't deserve the death penalty or maybe deserves some opportunity of parole in 25 years. Again, I don't, I don't know if I could feel that way or I would want that and I would still – but I, I, I absolutely think that uh, there's there's nothing wrong with that and this right. doesn't suggest anything about his you know lack of love for his daughter or right. his right, lack right, of right. courage. Right. So, so I think that we're both we're both on the same page when it comes to to respecting that kind of attitude towards somebody, and maybe even viewing it as much more courageous. Um, and then, you know, the the differences in opinion we have are just sort of what role what role that ought to play in something like punishment and in, in right. punishment right. and justice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's just where you go astray, but in. In yeah. a while, you'll come around. <laughs> right. I, I mean, to summarize really quickly, what my, like what I think is that that your perspective as the victim is not. I, I'm not. I'm not clear that it should be. Oh, it should be valued more than this perspective of society when when punishing rapists. Now that I said that, you're going to probably want to argue, and we probably should not. <laughs> well, let's save that for our redo of the for our redo. That's right. Episode. We'll probably take down that other episode. <laughs> <laughs> we really should. I mean, we shouldn't take it down. No, you know, no. As bad a, as I remember it. Right. But I, 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 I was so dissatisfied with that episode when we did it. It was. More than probably any other episode that we've done. <laughs> right. And now, I, and I hope that's not true of this one because uh, I'm excited to talk about this topic. Right. And, and we really want to get Josh Green to come on and, and, uh, and talk to us about his book, I think. Um, if he'd yeah. be willing, yeah, both of us know him something. and like him a lot. And but uh, the fact that he knows both of us might actually be exactly what makes him reluctant to come on. You you want to take a break and come back? Yep, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. As human beings, you and I need fresh, pure water to replenish our precious bodily fluids. Are you beginning to understand? (laughs) Have you ever heard of a thing called fluoridation? Fluoridation of water? Uh, Yes, I I have heard of that, Jack. Yes. Yes. Well, do you know what it is? No. No, I, I don't know what it is now. Do you realize... That fluoridation is the most monstrously conceived and dangerous communist plot we have ever had to face. Uh, Jack, Jack, tell me, tell me, Jack, when did you first become, well, develop this theory? Well, I, uh, I, I first became aware of it, Mandrake, during the physical act of love. Yes, a a profound sense of fatigue, a feeling of emptiness followed. Luckily, I I was able to interpret these feelings correctly. Loss of essence. I can assure you it has not recurred, Mandrake. Women uh, 
them sense my power. And they seek the life essence. I do not avoid women, Andre. Yeah. But I, I do deny them my essence. <laughs> yes, Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Um, that was a clip from Dr. Strangelove. This was Hamler's suggestion. It's a great movie, by the way. If you have not seen Dr. Strangelove, then awesome. you, pr- you probably don't listen to this podcast if you haven't seen Dr. Strangelove. Uh, but, but that's a clip about water fluoridation and, and the general's theory. <laughs> Why don't you give a little – because it wasn't obvious to me what the connection would be to uh, Josh Green's book and, and the reviews that we're going to discuss today. Um, that will, By the way, it's a review by Thomas Nagel and a review by – Robert Wright of Josh Green's book. Okay, here's how I think it relates. First of all, any opportunity to do a clip from Dr. Strange's Love <laughs> is welcome, and especially this one. It has one of my favorite lines in all of movies. Um, I do not avoid women, Mandrake, but I do deny them my essence. <laughs> the general has kind of forced a nuclear war with communist Russia. The reason is that he thinks there's a, a, a commie plot to fluoridate our water supply in America. So, you know, this is the only way. We have to destroy them or else our water supply will be fluoridated, which sort of makes sense, right? I mean, you know, that if they have this dastardly plot that's going to poison our water... To to, to spare uh, our teeth. But then you find out why he thinks, why he's developed this theory that the, the communists are fluoridating the water supply in the United States, and it's and it was during the physical act of love that he realized this, and he felt a profound fatigue, uh, which is obviously that he couldn't get it up, and and so he goes. Luckily, I was able to interpret these right. symptoms correctly. So this whole thing that he started is just because this guy can't get it up, and the way this relates, I think, n- perfectly to what Josh Green is saying. So you take a, a dilemma like the like the trolley problem or with the footbridge, and we all. Think Think, or most people think you shouldn't push the fat man off the bridge to save five people. Now, yeah. we think we've tapped in to some sort of intrinsic moral wrongness about pushing the fat man. Right. But actually, according to Josh Green, and this is true for a lot of our deontological judgments, it just has to do with how we've evolved. It doesn't have to do with any kind of accurate perception of moral reality. It has to do with the fact that we've evolved to think that personal violations, like pushing, like directly pushing somebody off a, a, a bridge, is, is, is somehow worse than just doing something that would lead that guy to, to die but not actually physically touching him ourselves, right? So, right. so our theories, are, we don't understand. It's not transparent to us why we have this moral intuition or moral theory. Uh, we think it's for one reason, but actually it's for another one that has nothing right. to do with morality. And it, but it presents itself to, in, to us as, as, a, as a truth, as a primary truth, because of how e- it, it pops into our head very, very easily that it's wrong. It, it seems as if it's a moral truth, and it's not until until at least according to Josh Green and many other moral psychologists that you realize why this is happening, that you realize that this is not tracking moral truth at all. It's tracking sort of this evolutionary heritage. Um, That's right. So let's talk about uh, Wright's review. And let's say also what the, the, the overriding worry that Josh Green has in his book, and it's called Moral Tribes. Tribes. And I think what, what, what he's saying is that the big problem in the world is that we have these people who are convinced 
that their moral intuitions reflect some sort of reality, even though they trace back to some sort of evolutionary process that influences you in a way so that you will favor uh, your tribe. You will bias the interests of people in your tribe, and tribe can be defined fairly loosely, over the interests of others, right? Right. So, so the psychological mechanisms that give rise to these moral intuitions are really – uh, Green points out or argues are really, really good solutions to the problem of cooperation on a local scale. They solve the problem of cooperation and allow people to live together and act unselfishly and reap the rewards of cooperation. But but then when you now get – now cultures have, have evolved. Everybody has these same basic mechanisms. Built on these mechanisms are a whole set of rules, cultural rules, religious rules. And now all of a sudden two groups come in contact with each other and they, they have very, very – different rules, the, the psychological mechanisms that evolved to solve cooperative problems cannot seem to deal properly with these intergroup conflicts. Right. right. So they're, they're more designed to resolve intragroup conflicts, right. but not to solve intergroup conflicts. In fact, uh, because that's just not what natural selection would favor in the environment in which we evolve. Right. This is how Wright describes Green's solution. He, he writes, if this diversity of moral codes is indeed the big problem, one solution suggests itself, get rid of the diversity. We need a common currency, a unified system for weighing values, Green writes. What we lack, I think, is a coherent global moral philosophy, one that can resolve disagreements among competing moral tribes. And then Wright writes, he's proposing nothing less than the moral equivalent of Esperanto. Which <laughs> right. is the universal language, right? Which I is a very nice would. analogy because that's exactly it. That's a, I mean, and this is the appeal of utilitarianism. There is a common denominator. You can convert everything into utility or happiness or welfare, whatever, whatever that, wh- however you define that thing that you want to maximize. And so it offers this. It's it's like a global currency, exactly like that, right? So let's just and do the math. It's one, it's not just that everybody can, you know, everybody can understand it. And it's it's that everybody, to some extent anyway, values values happiness over unhappiness. Right. It doesn't require some sort of leap to, to say like, hey, how about actually in- improving the lives of lots of people, right? That doesn't require a leap. The tension only right. comes if in. All with, things right. being equal, most people would rather improve the lives of others rather than make them worse. But that's the key. It's all things being equal, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and think all things are never equal. It seems like the competing moral tribes, what they're fighting over is which of the values overrides the utilitarian value at a specific time. And so I think his idea is he has to debunk those other values. Right. So he, you know, for, for Josh Green, and this is mentioned in one of the reviews, it's, it's, like, it's like a visual illusion in some sense. Just like the Mueller-Lyre illusion where the two lines, you swear up and down that they look different. Once you know that, once you measure them and you know that it's not the same, it's not as if that disappears. That analogy doesn't quite work because you can measure the two lines to know that you're making a mistake. Right. But there's no comparable measurement you can use when we're talking about moral judgments, a kind of independent 
objective measurement that you know everybody could agree on. You know, right. once you take the ruler to the two lines, you realize, oh, I was wrong. And you wouldn't necessarily think that about pushing the fat man off the bridge or buying your daughter a nice sweater, even when that money could buy. 50 mosquito nets to uh, save a bunch of kids from malaria. Right. And and one of the things that, I mean this is this is one of the big challenges for for moral psychology there is this tendency for psychologists who study morality to adopt the strategy of the literature and judgment and decision making on errors and biases in judgment. The work of Kahneman and Tversky and all of the, the work that has been done since then relies on the strategy of discovering you know, the, the rational answer and demonstrating that people systematically deviate from this normative standard um, and that there are some rules by, by which we can understand why. And in the domain of judgment decision making, this is often about probabilistic judgments. And so, you know, there's a well worked out theory of how to determine probabilities. There's disagreement, but it's not, there's not widespread debate about the rightness of these. And there's ways of testing these theories as well, right? Right. You know, and so, so probability theory is not nearly as contentious. And, uh, and the other feature of many of those scenarios, as you point out, is that once, you know, with this like framing problem that Kahneman Tversky famously described, where people uh, switch their judgments only because of surface features of the problem, right? Not because the math remains exactly the same, saving lives and uh, uh, risking lives, but the surface features of the problem change and people change their answer. When you point this out to people, when you say, like, look at these two, they say, oh, I get it. Right. That's right. It's an error. And that just doesn't happen in this kind of thing, right? So In this kind of moral domain. In this yeah. kind of moral domain. I mean, at the, sometimes you can do something like that, and I think we've done work like this where you point out to people that they're being inconsistent. Like the Chip Perron study is a case of this, right? When you point out both cases, oh, did you realize that only race was uh, manipulated? And then they say, oh, they're embarrassed by it. But nobody's embarrassed by the the trolley versus the footbridge scenario. They're like, no, yeah, that's right. That's and right. certainly not in real life scenarios. So, so that's the setup for the book. The issues come into whether or not this grander point is is a valid one. And Richard Wright here, I think, makes a Robert very, Wright. I mean, Robert Wright. Uh, sorry, Robert makes a very insightful point, which is. Hey, you're talking about all of these psychological mechanisms that bias us. It's not a panacea to all of a sudden adopt this common currency because guess what? No matter what common currency you adopt, people are biased to find – to serve themselves no matter what. So you have all of this literature in psychology that that Wright um, alludes to on confirmation bias and and how we distort interpretation of rules to favor us. And so Wright says essentially like – Look, let's say you could do that. Let's say you turn everyone into a utilitarian. Do you really think that there wouldn't be extraordinarily conflicting wars and lawsuits simply because people couldn't agree on what, how to maximize uh, welfare and what counted it as maximization? And so, so in some ways, uh, Wright is taking the, the very psychological analysis – that that Green is adopting and saying, like, you can't ignore all of this other psychological baggage that we have. Right. Here's the key quote for that, I think. Uh, he says, But however dark the view of human nature that inspired this mission, Josh's mission, to create this universal utilitarian moral language, right? He says, I fear it's not dark enough. 
If Green thinks that getting people to couch their moral arguments in a highly reasonable language will make them highly reasonable, I think he's underestimating the cleverness <laughs> and ruthlessness with which our inner animals pursue natural selection's agenda. We're, we seem designed to twist moral discourse, whatever language it's framed in, to selfish or tribal ends and to remain conveniently unaware of the twisting. Right. right. So right. in the end, the people who can't get it up are still going to they'll couch it as, you know, just as Ripper did. Right. Actually, Ripper, General Ripper is a great example of this. Right. He thinks he's doing the utilitarian good, but really it's because he can't get it up. And so what Wright's saying here is even if we all agree that that's our goal to bring about the most general happiness, we'll still convince ourselves that the way to do that is to do things for our tribe or ourselves. Right. And there and and it's not as if as you point out, it's not as if he's accusing humans of all being subversive and sneaky. This is just the way the mind works. I mean, people actually fail to see that they're doing this. So Dan Batson has these wonderful studies, uh Dave Desteno has these wonderful studies on on moral hypocrisy on sort of uh if you tell people that they are going to be assigned to an aversive task or a less aversive task, they happen to get to the experiment location first, so they could just choose by assigning themselves, or they could flip a coin. Right? So people actually say, oh, you know what? It's fair. That's, it's fair to flip a coin to determine this. But when you give people the opportunity to flip a coin, something like 80% of the people still put themselves in the pleasurable or less aversive condition because nobody can see the, the results of the coin flip. Right. And they think that they've done, you know, and, and the way that it that, that probably works is they, they, it might come up unfavorable and they're like, oh, wait, wait, that didn't fall right. That, or that fell down. And that's why it was, and so they do it again. Uh, and there's this whole literature on motivated reasoning in social psychology that shows that, that when, when there is some sort of outcome that is aversive to you, you find all kinds of ways to work around it. But when it's favorable to you, boom, that's the answer. Right. And so – And you know, like uh, he talks – Green focuses on moral dumbfounding and the John Haidt experiments as a way to show how our deontological intuitions are irrational, right? Yeah. But – we are probably just as good as at, at coming up with utilitarian justifications. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, right? Like, I mean, this is one of the things that got me most interested as, as, a, as a young, whatever, when I was three, as I <laughs> um, <Right>. – <laughs> was the problem of the utilitarian justification. You know, when people – like the, when I, I remember asking my parents about Hiroshima – you know, and and them offering a utilitarian justification like the saving of future lives, and then realizing at some point that that would be a justification that they would ab- find abhorrent in any yeah. other such circumstance. It just so happens that we are the ones who bombed. If we were the ones who got bombed, I guarantee you they'd be deontologists, and that was the whole point of the motivated reasoning studies that I did with Eric Ullman and Dave Tannenbaum, um, of which Chip Tyrone is included. Which is, you know, people are going to bend this left and right. But to be fair to Josh Green, I mean that it would. Don't you think it would solve a problem if we could at least agree on on the principles? Like if we said, like, fine, like I'm not going to let my deontological intuitions uh, play a role. Like I'm really going to stick to the utilitarian principles, and that might lead to arguments. 
but it would lead to fewer arguments? I mean, maybe. So let's say that, for example, you take an issue like gay marriage, and now we're just looking at it from the utilitarian perspective. Now, at first, you might have people who are just instinctively anti anti-gay for whatever reason, you know, religious reasons, disgust reasons, whatever, whatever reasons. Um, but now they're, they're saying, no, okay, we got to find a utilitarian justification. Now you might initially try to look for these studies which show that it harms, you know, divorce rates increase or it harms the children. But then when you don't find those, um, at some point it does seem like, at, at the very least, you know, you're, you're, you're committed to some sort of falsifiable view that if the evidence doesn't favor it and if people can somehow convince you that the evidence doesn't favor it, yeah, I, I, I still don't know. It's like with climate change or with a lot of other of these things. You can always find a hole in a study. You can always find a problem with the statistics. You can always complain, you know. So I don't know, but I, I so I, I kind of share your int- your, yeah. your feeling. I, I mean, it. to me, the question is really would um, so would the advantage? You know, suppose you could force everybody to say, like, okay, remember, we're sticking to utilitarianism, and by that we mean maximization of this sort, and welfare means this, um, and they try their hardest. It might reduce the flexibility of people in 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 arguing for their case, right? They wouldn't appeal to gut reactions, but but. Um, one of the things that, that – and maybe this will dovetail into the Nagel critique. Would the net benefit of that actually be disappear because people no longer now have some of these, these intuitions about justice and rights? So let's, uh, let's separate these two criticisms. Right. Rights, they're very different. Right. They're very different. And I think rights is – I don't know if it's original or novel. I've never heard it before. I've heard Nagel's criticisms. I've made Nagel's criticisms, I think. And, you know, I'm not the first to do those either. It's a very... It's fairly low-hanging fruit for a philosopher because because Josh Green is is trying to use sort of psychological data to 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 make these normative conclusions and that that right. raises alarm bells. We'll talk about that in a second, but that's very different than rights criticism which is saying even if we forget about Nagel's criticisms and we agree to all be utilitarians, it it still won't work. We'll still have these conflicts, they'll just take a different shape, you know. We'll still yeah. have just as much or maybe almost as much tribalism and moral conflict. It's just now we'll be arguing over happiness values rather than whatever we're arguing over now. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I had not heard this this criticism applied to Josh Green's view. And I got to say, when I read it, I I was – it was a satisfying – sort of turn when I realized the critique he was making because in some ways he's he out psychologyed uh, Josh Green um, yeah that's pretty know, impressive uh, yeah. <laughs> and and is like well let's look you know it's not as if moral intuitions are a natural kind right it's not as if these biases and heuristics just fall into the the domain of of uh, cooperative dilemma solutions there are all kinds of biases that you'd have to override and some of them might actually be magnified in in these instances um, uh, I want to read uh, Wright's last paragraph because I think it'll trans transition into the second critique he says it's tempting and, and, and Robert Wright says look I I, I defended in 
my book a, ch- a whole chapter saying utilitarianism was the, probably the most reasonable moral theory. So I, I you know, I, it's it's not that I'm not a utilitarian. I am. But then he ends the review. I think this is the end. It's tempting for us utilitarians to look around at people with more emotionally rooted value systems and think that these primitive worldviews are what stand in the way of progress. But if psychology tells us anything, it is to be suspicious of the intuition that the other guys are the problem and we're not, right? right? So he's – and I take that – I don't know if he means it this way, but I take that as a actually a really deep point about what utilitarians will sometimes do. They will, because they have these – probably extra high utilitarian intuitions and maybe lower other sort of value-based intuitions, moral moral intuitions. They're a little low on those scales. I've always said this. I think this is true about Singer. My point is is that I think sometimes utilitarians are convinced that they have they hold the rational view for just the reasons, you know, it's just that same kind of tribalism yeah. that's that that's leading to it. And that's what I take it right as saying in that last paragraph. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We are talking about two reviews of Josh Green's book that we have either not read or only partially read, <laughs> but we're confident we we know his view pretty well. It just sounds terrible. Like, why would people listen to us on this? I know. I, I, I should. I'm telling you, I read half, but and you, you know that's. <laughs> You're reviewing I'm actually it too, right? Yeah. I, are you going to finish I, the I, book before you? I will definitely finish the book before. You know, it's hard. Psychologists aren't used to reading long books. This is a meaty book. This is definitely like worth your money. It's uh, the paperback. Um, you know, clocks in at, at uh, three hundred and fifty odd pages, which is, I know it's like bathroom reading for a philosopher, but but. We read articles. Right. Yeah, no. But, I mean, I just thought given that you read Gödel Eschel Bach when you were four and a half years old, that, you know. That was before I was Josh a psychologist. Was before like, I was a psychologist. Really well-written, clear, but it wouldn't be that much of a problem. First of all, Gödel Eschel Bach has pictures. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I wanted to say before we move on to Nagel's review, and, and then we got to wrap up. I, I, I thought it was interesting what Robert Wright said, which is that we overestimate the proportion uh, or the amount of disagreement that stems from a disagreement about core moral intuitions or core values and underestimate the amount of moral conflict that's produced just by disagreement about the facts, right? right? And this this leads into his point, which is, given that there's so much disagreement about the facts, that's just 
prime fodder for us to rationalize, even if it's for utilitarian, you know, we're, right. we're agreed that we're trying to reach the utilitarian outcome because there's so much disagreement about facts. And, you know, climate change is a great example of this, yeah. right? It's like nobody, everybody's looking at this from the utilitarian point of view. The disagreement is only about the science and the studies, which nobody has read, right? <laughs> right. Nobody, nobody on any side of the issue besides, or, or you know, climate 0.001% of the yeah. people are I read it all when anything I was, by third-hand reports. I read it all when I was five. Uh, yeah, no, it's absolutely right. I mean, we rely on we rely on scientists to 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 do this. I, I think that that's a good point. Um, I, I think that though the the salience of of things like the abortion debate and the death penalty debate are what make us overestimate uh, overestimate the degree. I also think, and I and I often make this point. I also think that we overestimate uh, amount the amount of moral disagreement, whether it's about facts or about values. I, you know, uh, when when we're talking about about moral judgments, I think there's far greater similarity about these things. Um, then, then there is difference. You know, you have like quite a bit of overlap about what things are wrong to do. Um, and you know, Rob Kurzban actually has a nice paper with with other people whom I don't remember, um, where they actually did this cross cultural study and had people rank infractions from worst to to least severe. And you know, there's quite there's quite a bit of agreement. And you're right, the disagreements about facts don't seem to be resolved, not because people aren't utilitarian, but because pe- people find the one study. I was just telling my class about about uh, my tendency to, I love caffeine, right? When I see an article that says, like, turns out caffeine is great for you. I'm like, yeah. Like, I read the title and maybe the first sentence of the abstract, and I'm like, see? See everybody? And then... Yeah, I do the same that, with alcohol, with all those studies. <laughs> right, right. And then when I see something that's like, you know, uh, it turns out caffeine might make you die. Uh, I either ignore it, but if someone forces me to look at it, I find every single flaw in the study, right? I'm like, oh, this and is... And you're, my... like, trained in this. Right? <laughs> trained in it. And, and that just makes me worse, right? You no, know, for me, it's alcohol, like... And, and, and it's funny because for a while there were these studies. Yeah, drink a glass or two of red wine. You'll be fine. But that wasn't enough for me. You know? <laughs> so then I found that one study which says you can drink as much as you want and it's all good for you. And I was like, okay, that's the one right, right. there. That's the study. Uh, now, now all you have to do is I've find a study. All you have to do is find a study about excessive masturbation, and you'll you'll have justified <laughs> your entire lifestyle. <laughs> I do not avoid women, David. I <laughs> do deny them my life essence. I'm sorry, I said excessive masturbation, and that's a value. <laughs> that's a value judgment. Uh, yeah. There may no, there may be no such thing. Just again to remind you about the sort of central critique that people have to Josh Green's line that, and now this will take us into the the Thomas Nagel review. So Nagel's critique is is not really a critique of empirical psychology. Nagel is Nagel is after this this common common criticism that philosophers have leveled and other uh, people have leveled at at Josh in his defense of utilitarianism uh, and at how he gets there, right? At how he arrives at utilitarianism. And Nagel is challenging whether or not it's a, a justified move at all to conclude from these, what, you know, these species typical, uh, right? These, these intuitions that evolved for a particular reason, whether that point ca- can in any way lead to the idea that utilitarianism ought to be true. Um, species typical right. moral limitations. What I take the the major critique to be is is the attempt to debunk everything 
but the utilitarian intuitions just by virtue of the fact that you can tell an evolutionary story from our uh, deontological intuitions and you know they, they seem to occur in the more cognitive parts of our brain rather than the emotional centers of our brain but that's not going to work because our utilitarian intuitions a are just as vulnerable to debunking and so it will just come down as where we were before which is confl- conflicting core value judgments we all agree that utilitarianism has a value the question is whether it should be the only value or not right Right. So this, so the evolutionary account doesn't deflate uh, non non consequentialist intuitions in the way that Green thinks any that it more does. than it would deflate consequentialist intuitions. Right. I mean, right. Or it doesn't. You know. Right. Presumably, there's an account. any more intact than our deontological intuitions. Right. So presumably, there is there is an account of why we're able to do math, but that does not uh, uh, undermine doing math. And so, I mean, so this is actually a, a, a point that. I guess is intrinsic to these critiques, but but I don't hear stated explicitly, which is, okay, so how do you determine whether or not these errors are errors? Uh, so these moral judgments are errors? Well, you compare it to a normative standard. Well, how do you pick the normative standard? Well, you dismiss the judgments that are error prone. And this is right. this this is a circular way of going about uh, about uh, solving the problem, right? So uh, so Green's account relies on him. It really relies on him having externally reached at the truth of utilitarianism because without that, he cannot use the evolutionary, the emotional data as, as the data to arrive at the normative, at the normative truth, right? So there's, he's, it's a trick that's just not allowed in this kind of philosophy. That's right. Although, to be fair, and I remember, and it's, and it's interesting to me that, that, that he went with this. I, I challenged him on this point in the book. Actually, but not just me. It was Leanne Young and I uh, challenged him about this in the book because I interviewed them both at the same time. And it was right when he was developing this response, right? And it's this ideal, it's this ideal world. Uh, Nagel describes this uh, thought experiment. Right. It's a, it's a sort of a, this is how he's going to independently establish the, the reasonableness um, of utilitarianism. Right. This is Nagel's description of it. I think it's fair because it reminds me exactly of what Green Josh said to me. Um, he says, what would you, he asks, what would you do if you had a choice of creating a world full of people like us? Or a world full of people whose natural motives were completely unselfish and impartial and who cared about everyone, not just their friends and families, as much as they cared about themselves. He assumes that you would choose to create the second species and that this shows that there is something the matter with us and our species-typical moral responses. Right. Uh, right. And, and this, then is where, <laughs> this is where we get to your, to your suspicion that perhaps there simply is uh, a different kind of emotional response in people who, who find utilitarianism appealing because it's not, at all, it's not at all intuitive to me. And in fact, I've used very similar uh, arguments in teaching rhetorically that, that to me yield the conclusion that of course you would want someone to be loyal and respect right. rights, right? <laughs> right. 
and to, to argue for the like as a reductio, you've used that right, kind exactly. of thought experiment as a reductio of utilitarianism because right. that does seem like kind of that actually seems like kind of a nightmarish world. It does. Not like, I mean, not like some sort of like brave new world. It's reminiscent of of Susan Wolf's uh, Moral Saints, right? Yeah. Where um, now to be fair, if I'm Josh Green. He could say, "Well, that's that's just because you guys rolled the dice um, and got really lucky with where you are in the world. So, of course, you favor this position over a position where you'd actually have to make sacrifices for other people." And whether right, if I were dying, maybe I'd be like, "Dude, utilitarianism sounds awesome. Like, send me send me that cable like that cable money." But but you can't use that as evidence. You can't use right. uh, as as primary evidence to support your your normative position when in fact it seems clear that you have to justify that. Um, it's not it's not a justification. It's the conclusion. It's like <laughs> exactly. It's not a justification. It it completely begs the question. It's because, a question begging. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even if you grant that that would be the ideal world, which I definitely don't. But let's yeah. say even if you did. Would his sort of meta-ethical view, which I guess he's calling deep pragmatism, he doesn't want to call himself a utilitarian because he's still not sure whether he's a moral realist or not. So he's he's relabeling it deep pragmatism. Uh, in the, uh, oh, is, is that why? Good luck with so, that. So is that why he doesn't? Because he doesn't want to make he doesn't want to commit to to anything about moral. Yeah, because he started out as an error theorist. Like yeah. his uh, his dissertation is defending a Mackey style error theory, moral skepticism. Uh, yeah. But then he realized that deep down he was a consequentialist or utilitarian, and so now he's trying to reconcile those two conflicting views. But, uh, but we'll, I, we'll put links to we'll put links to what it means to be an error theorist and a moral realist uh, for those and a moral skeptic. Just, and a moral and, skeptic. Uh, but he doesn't want to necessarily say that there's an objective foundation for utilitarianism, just that it's the one that makes the most sense or it's most right. reasonable or I don't know. It's very hard to to get a handle on, you know, right. how that's supposed to work. But here's the thing, right? You might want a world that would be a little bit more like that than our world. Yeah. You would you would probably definitely want a world where people are a little more impartial than they are right now. But that's where the moral disagreement is. It's how much how much between our world now uh, the tribal world and yeah. that to me a kind of clinical cold nightmarish world <laughs> that green's describing about right. i do want to get i do want to get a little bit more Here are there. Two i don't want to get all the way towards there at all <laughs> like i just don't like it's not even us those aren't even i don't even recognize those people as people you know yeah, yeah. this is you, like you, it, here is your distribution of utiles for the day <laughs> bernard williams you had has to. a great article on this where it's a very deep criticism of utilitarianism he says it's an attack on your actual integrity as a person because if you're constantly working to make everybody else's lives better then you just become this like utilitarian utility maximizing machine and you lose like your your, your personal identity just gets fragmented <laughs> Right. Uh, and, for and, this, right, right, and this is this is. Uh, there's two things about Nagel's critique. One is that that he ends on exactly this this problem of of you know what it means to be a, a person and have and th- that it should count for something in a moral theory. It's not solved by moving completely to utilitarianism. Like it's it's still there's still a lot of problems. So why not try to arrive at as you say some some sort of theory uh, where you preserve 
where you preserve what what seems to be so intrinsic to human morality, this notion of that of, of a person actually, uh, I, you know, I don't know how he puts it, but he put it much more eloquently than I, right? And you know, this is I don't know if this is the the Nagel's the the point that at which for which Nagel is raising this, but he points out that that you know people like Singer and now Green and in, in print say I endorse utilitarianism. And I still favor my children. And Green says, well, I, I, I'm a hypocrite, but at least I'm trying. But I think this is one reason in which he's not a hypocrite, that it is not as if I don't think that Josh feels as if he is in the way that, you know, if you cheated on your wife, um, you would feel guilty and really try hard not to. I don't think that that's his psychological point of view every time he buys his children something nice. Right. right. There is a, a deep sense in which he is actually endorsing a value that he claims right. to to reject. He's um, officially rejecting something that he actually at a deeper level actually endorses. Endorse. Right. Because there is a way yeah. in which, you know, I would I would reject all, you know, I would reject infidel like uh, impulses toward infidelity. If I could get rid of them by like, you know, taking a pill, I would do something like that. I would reject the impulse toward, uh, you know, heart, being selfish in ways that harm other innocent people. But I would not reject and I don't think Josh would reject the impulse to take care of his children. And that right. to Nagel means something. Take a pill, if, if Josh could take a pill that would make him, you know, uh, spend a fraction of the money that he spends on his children that he does right now and, and, and spend it on other people and actually, you know, want to do that. I don't know. This would be a question to ask him. Would right. he, would he take that pill? Pill doesn't right. exist right now, but would he take it? I definitely, I definitely wouldn't. Would I take right. a pill? What? Yeah. I mean, that's just a separate issue. Would you yeah, like yeah, these yeah, moral pills? Pill. But right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's, most, there's very few pills that we won't take. <laughs> take the pill and ask questions later. <laughs> like, Wait, yeah, was exactly. this a boner pill or was this one of those utility maximizing pills? Pills. <laughs> or both. <laughs> um, I mean, we I got think, IKEA. Yeah, yeah I, I, we got it. We got it. I do feel a little dissatisfied uh, about this episode, but fortunately, these are issues that we plan on talking with talking Josh about, about, and also Paul Bloom. And I, I you know, I got to say that the spirit of Josh's book and the way that it's written is, to his credit, I think that that Josh isn't stupidly unaware of most of these objections he's no i don't more yeah, aware than right. anybody else and his right. response might simply be look man i'm trying man i'm trying like there are clear cases in which these intuitions make us do fucked up things to other people and let's right. try our best to create a world in which there is fewer like fucked right. up things being done let's try to let's try to create a, a world where people aren't gay bashing just because they find it disgusting right. that two men are kissing Right? right. Like, exactly. Um, exactly. Then it's just the details, but but yeah. but but the details matter, right? The details because matter deeply. I'm just trying, you know, I'm just trying the, to point that's out what that where the details is moral disagreement. I think. Yeah. Right. I, on both sides, on the empirical side and on the value side. If we presume that we don't want to go all the way towards Josh Green's quote unquote ideal world, then it's where on that spectrum <laughs> you want to be. World Alpha three two nine eight. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Utility is maximized. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I simply wanted to point out that that uh, that if anything, he's exhibiting some of the moral values that we would we would care about the most, which is trying 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 to make things better, um, and also yeah. you know writing clearly. 
and like writing that guy. Uh, he's a good. He's guy's an amazing. A fucking writer. great writer. He's an amazing writer, and it, in you know this this book has been in the works for quite some time. But I'm it, but he is he's not fast and loose in the way that these you know sort of some it's easy for these two hundred page pop science books to kind of gloss over things. And this is footnoted. This is you know detailed descriptions. He does he doesn't play fast and loose, um, you know. So so I recommend the book. We'll link to it. All right, uh, join us next time on Very Bad.